Children. People tend to have a love-hate relationship with children, especially if it's somebody else's. Maybe that's why we're trying to always have relationships with dogs and cats. It's just so much easier sometimes. I came across an article entitled, Why Are Children So Annoying? They gave 60 reasons. I'm not going to read them all, but uh, maybe you'll relate to a few of them. Children are annoying because they won't shut up. Everything gets a running commentary. Children are annoying because when they're not telling you stuff, they're asking you stuff. Usually stupid things like, what's your favorite color? Because they won't accept your replies. Your favorite color can't be yellow because yellow is yucky. Children are annoying because they have no patience. If they need a tissue, they need it now. They're never hungry, they're starving, never thirsty, but dying of thirst. Because they need your help with scissors, with scotch tape, with buttons, with shoelaces, with ties. But then they insist that they don't need any help. Children are annoying because they want to eat cereal without milk. They're annoying because they won't eat their crusts. Because they want you to play with them all the time. They're annoying because they won't leave you alone in the bathroom. Five seconds after the door shuts, they're desperate to go. Because they can't see a glass of water without knocking it over. Because every lid that needs to be on, they leave off. Because there's more than, if there's more than one of them, not a day goes by without one punching, kicking, punching, or slapping the other. Children are annoying because whenever you ask them to do something, their first word out of their mouth is wait. Second word is why. And they're annoying because they can't just eat their food. They have to play with it, dissect it, moan about it, complain it's too hot when it's not hot, theatrically blow on it, and most of all, reject it because it's got onions or it's green, it's got pieces in it. Most of us can remember those days and still experience that with our grandchildren. We've got some young parents that are experiencing that present day. Children are often not considered important and often considered a nuisance. They're annoying and there are times when we just want them to leave us alone. That was no doubt one of the prevailing sentiments even back in Jesus' day. We see that in the first verse of our scripture passage that Ben read, and we're going to read again here. But then we see Jesus' attitude and the fact that he loves little children. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 to 15, we read this. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now, if you were brought up as a child attending Sunday school, we all sang, Jesus loves me, this and I know, for the Bible tells me so. We also sang, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And those kinds of lovely sentiments are not without biblical basis. And this passage here that we're looking at this morning may be one, um, the, the most 
the strongest single passage that we have for that biblical foundation because here we find Jesus blessing little children. Now, this particular incident is not only recorded in Matthew in our passage here. It's also recorded in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, also recorded in Luke, chapter 18. And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, the very last verse... In the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 25, John writes, Jesus did many things, other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And then I thought about this situation here, and of all those things that Jesus did, all those things that were written that, wouldn't fill, that the world couldn't hold, he wanted to make sure that this truth that we're looking at this morning, came out. This incident was so significant, or it was significant enough that the Holy Spirit made sure that Matthew and Mark and Luke all recorded it. It appeared to the disciples that the whole idea of bringing little children to Jesus was trivial. Kind of a trivial intrusion in the midst of much more important things. Most of the disciples weren't married at the time and probably didn't have children except perhaps uh, Peter. But parents in, in this scene here, they wanted Jesus to touch their children, to bless their children, to pray for their children. And so they brought their children to Jesus. And I'd, I'd like to explore some spiritual implications of that and some of the lessons that we can pull out of this passage this morning. Now in verse 13, it begins with the word then, and the word then just sort of links it with the passage that we looked at the last couple of weeks when Jesus just finished talking to uh, the Pharisees and then, then to the disciples about marriage and divorce. Kind of interesting, it's all family-related here, marriage and children. We don't really know how long a time there was between talking with the Pharisees and this conversation here. Um, however, according to the Gospel of Mark, they were in a house when this particular incident took place. According to Mark, after Jesus had his conversation with the Pharisees about marriage and divorce, you remember they were trying to catch him and trying to say something that they could hold against him. It says in Mark chapter 10, verse 10, when they were in the house again. That's when the disciples said it would be better off not to get married. You remember that? Uh, we looked at that last week as, as well. So after they finished talking with the Pharisees, they all went to someone's house. I don't know if it's Peter's or... The, in a house anywhere, anyway, and then the disciples asked him their question. So they're in this house, and as usual, there's a lot of people that are still following Jesus because just before that other passage, uh, it said that crowds gathered, he was teaching, and he was healing them. You know, he was doing important stuff, right? And it says in verse 13, Then the people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. Now it's interesting to note that both in the passage in Mark and Luke, they use the imperfect tense of the verb, which means they were bringing, they were in the process of bringing. It just wasn't say here and done. And I'm assuming it probably started with one parent kind of tentatively saying, Hey, will you pray? And then when the other parents said, oh, this is cool, let's, let's do it too. 
And I don't think it was probably just, uh, just the people in the house. There were people probably outside the house, which was often the case. And when they saw that happening, they wanted to push in and have this great teacher, this healer, to lay hands on their kids as well. And they had probably seen a demonstration of Jesus' tenderness towards people. You remember our study that we did in Matthew chapter 18. In the very, very beginning, Jesus called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And then his whole teaching in chapter 18 was all revolving around this little child and how our love for children needs to be expressed for our love for one another as well. Most of these people had seen the love in his heart, the tenderness and the gentleness of his personality and his character. They were convinced that he was a unique prophet, if nothing else, a unique prophet of God when he spoke as he spoke, when he did the miracles that he did in during, while he was in his healing ministry, and they would have wanted to bring their children to him. Why? Well, partly because it was customary to do that in the Jewish culture. They had been raised to do that. In fact, in the Talmud, in their, in their holy uh, writings, um, it said that they were to bring their children to any great teacher of the law so that he might bless them and pray for them. So they no, no doubt had been in the process of doing that. The father would usually bring the child in infancy to the synagogue, and the priest would pray for the child, and then he would hand it to, the, to, to one of the elders, and they would pray over the child. They'd hand it to the next elder and kind of go around the circle of elders as they all prayed and blessed the children. You remember Joseph and Mary themselves when Jesus uh, took Jesus to the temple as an infant to, be, to present him to the Lord? They did this because they believed that these men who specially represented God, who were serving God's kingdom, teaching God's word, must have a closeness to the heart and soul of God, and therefore must have perhaps a prayer, a prayer life that with more faith, more power than maybe they, they were feeling in themselves, and they longed to have their children prayed for by them. We still do that today. It's a practice in our churches. When parents want one, one of their children to be dedicated, we pray for them, we bless them, encouraging them. It's a, it's a special part time in the heart of a parent. Now, it's interesting that the word for children that Matthew uses here is paideon. Paideon is a word that is kind of a generic word for young children, little children. Luke, a doctor, by the way, uses a much more specific word, brephos. And that word means a nursing baby, an infant. It was even used for a fetus. You remember in Luke chapter 1 when Mary visited Elizabeth and her fetus, her baby still, still in the womb, uh, leapt for joy? Brephos, same word. It's the same word used in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, where it says, Like newborn babies, brephos, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow in your salvation. They were bringing their infant babies to Jesus. And we know they must have been infants because Mark tells us that he took them in his arms and blessed them. They were bringing babies to Jesus. They wanted him to pray for them with his unique divine power, with his unique closeness to God. Now, let's be clear about something here. 
When we think about Jesus loving little children, we, we sing about it, we believe that. Jesus was not just showing some, some shallow sentimentality for them. Oh, what a cute little baby. He knew they were sinners. And we're going to come back to that point in a moment here. He knew they were born of the flesh. And John tells us that which is born of the flesh is what? It's flesh. He knew that what David said was true back in Psalm chapter 51, verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth from the time my mother conceived me. There is a sin principle operating from the, con- from the conception onward. So there was no shallow sentimentality here being shown about these children. There was no concept that children are righteous or holy or pure or innocent or undefiled. He doesn't make them into some kind of perfection that isn't true of them. But he does acknowledge in this particular passage that they have a special place in his heart. Now, you can imagine the picture, the scenario that's going on. It wouldn't only be the parents inside, as I mentioned. The word would have gone out. They would have seen what was happening. And people started streaming in with their kids, trying try to push through the crowd. They all wanted their children blessed. And while all this was going on, the disciples were there, and they were watching this. And I could almost feel their frustration beginning to grow. Perhaps their sense of protection of the Master. Um, it was probably all building Uh, What in the world was going on? This is getting out of hand. They felt it was distracting from the important things that Jesus should be doing here. He's he's a teacher. He's he's a healer. He should be doing that. He was supposed to be uh, teaching and healing. They, they, They had to have been going on for a little while here. And finally it gets to the point the disciples just had had enough of this nonsense. And in verse 13 it says the disciples rebuked them. The parents. Now in Mark's account, that too is in the imperfect tense, the verb tense, which emphasizes the continuing nature of the rebuking. It wasn't just, hey, stop it. It was continual. It's a very strong word, almost to the point of threatening the parents. Cut it out. You can't just be interrupting the Lord this way and bringing in your your babies, for goodness sake. You're messing up the program. Get out of here. He needs to be able to teach and preach and, and, and heal. Now at this point, Matthew writes in verse 14, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. That sounds nice. Sounds very gracious. Sounds like what we would consider Jesus as being gracious in his responses and in his answers. Sounds very gentle. let, Let the children come to me. It's all right. What Matthew doesn't add, but Mark tells us in chapter 10, verse 14, is that Jesus was angry at his disciples. When Jesus saw this, Mark says, he was indignant. He was angry and outraged. He was furious. Now, there are only two or three times that's recorded that that Jesus was actually angry at his disciples. Frustrated with them? A lot. Disappointed with them? A lot. But really angry? Only a few times. And this was one of them. And this is the only time that particular word of indignation is used of Jesus in reference to his disciples. 
It was more like he said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He was upset. Why? Why was he so upset? Well, I can think of a few reasons. He loved babies. <laughs> he loved babies. I, I, I truly believe that he loved them because he knew they were a creation of God. Actually, they were a creation of his. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, God created man and woman to be bonded together for life. And the first reason was what? To make babies. To multiply the earth. He also loved parents. And he knew that if you reject people's children, it happens today, you're not going to have a chance to be able to reach out to them and, and be able to speak into their lives. One of the greatest ways into a parent's heart is through their children. No one is outside, number three, the care and plan and love of God. No one, not even little babies that we sometimes think as insignificant. No one coming to Jesus Christ ever intrudes on him. Fourthly, children provided him an amazing analogy, a picture, an incredible illustration for salvation. And he he always used those occasions and used those to, to talk about salvation. And then fifthly, I think he was angry with them because he needed to set them straight on something very important. And that something was this, you don't ever, ever say who can and cannot come to Jesus. That's not our prerogative. That's Jesus' decision and his alone. So he says to them in verse 14, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And there's a little detail here that adds to the significance of what he's saying. And you know, I, I, I like details. What's interesting is that he uses two different verbs here, and there's a reason for that. The first one is let them come. And that is in the aorist tense for you gra- grammar people that like grammar. He, he says right now, this is a moment. Let them come right now. Let, let the kids come now. And then he says, do not hinder them. And that's in the present tense, which indicates now and in the future. So what he's saying is right now, let these little ones, let, 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 let these parents come with their babies. And then from now on, for future reference, guys, don't ever forbid them from coming to me again. Children are so important to God. We love our nursery workers and the work they do with our children. We love our children's, uh, ch- uh, ch- children's teachers. They've, some of them have been doing it for years and years and years. I think there's going to be a special blessing for them, perhaps a special, special uh, uh, jewel in their crown. I don't know. God loves them too. It's important because that's the formation time of their life. And when they come to Him, they come so readily, so easily, and they come so eagerly, don't they? You've experienced that. One writer says, As a flower in the garden stretches toward the light of the sun, so there is in the child a mysterious inclination toward the eternal light. Have you ever noticed this mysterious thing, he writes, that when you tell the smallest child about God, they never ask with strangeness and wonder, What or who is God? I've never seen him. But they listen with shining faces to the words as though they are soft, loving sounds from the the land of home. Or when you you teach a child to, to fold their little hands in prayer, that they do this as though it were a matter of course. 
Tell them, these little ones, he says, the stories of the Savior. Show them the pictures with scenes and personages of the Bible. How their pure eyes shine. How their little hearts beat. Why is this so important to Jesus? Because the end of verse 14 says, For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. That's an amazingly important statement And I think there's a double meaning here that Jesus is getting across, which he often did. First of all, I believe he was actually referring to the actual babies in his presence in that statement, since he's holding them in his arms and he's blessing them. He's saying, these are the kind who have a place in the kingdom, babies like these babies. There's nothing mentioned about the faith of the parents. There's no covenants and promises that he's saying, okay, parents, I I need you to make a promise uh, before everybody, before I do this. He just says, babies such as these, babies in this category, before the time when they understand and can respond to Christ, before the time when they can exercise their own faith, these little ones belong to the kingdom. You see, the kingdom of heaven is a sphere of God's rule in Christ through grace. And he says these have a place, and I believe he's including all Babies. You remember when the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I, came, when I became a man, I put away the, my childish way of thinking. Paul was telling us that there are two times in life. There's a time when you can't understand and reason correctly, and then there's a time when you do understand. And I believe that when, when we're in that time when we don't understand, like the little baby, that's the time God has placed us or them in special care under his sovereign rule as king. And I believe grace then is extended to them. That's why I believe that if a, if a baby dies, a baby goes into the presence of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they are uniquely in the care of the king Now, I don't know how God dispenses that grace to them other than by a sovereign act on his own part by virtue of the death of Jesus Christ for sin. It's applied to them by the sovereignty of God on their behalf because they cannot choose on their own. Now, let's think theologically about this just a second. I don't think... And it means that all little babies are saved as we think of salvation. Let's listen carefully. I just think they're under a special protection. And if they die at that moment, God receives them. You see, if they were saved, if we talk about salvation and, and how one becomes saved is through the blood of Christ and the salvation through Christ, if they were saved, then when they got old enough to understand on their own, they lose their salvation? I have a struggle with that. I don't believe that. So I just believe that they're all under the special protection, and what a wonderful confidence we can have in that. I think that's what was in the heart of David back in Second uh, Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, when his infant son died, and he said, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. 
David was talking about when he himself was going to die, he was sure that he would be going to see God. And if he was going to, be, uh, to see God, he was going to see his son because he was sure that his son was in his presence. Are babies sinners? Yes. Because they are produced by sinners. They are born with a sinful nature. Remember David said he was born in sin even from conception onward? And yet God has a special place for them. And that's, again, just a wonderful confidence that we have. So you may ask, well, okay, I hear about the age of accountability. The age of accountability. When is that? I have no idea. I seriously have no idea. I know I accepted Christ when I was seven years old. We've got two five-year-old granddaughters that have already accepted the Lord as their Savior. Well, so when do we have to start thinking about teaching them the ways of the Lord? (laughs) Right now, from infancy. I know parents who, who, who will sing to their fetus. We as parents have a tremendous, tremendous responsibility that God has given us. That responsibility is to make sure that that little life that's given to us under the care of the king is returned then to the king after our stewardship is completed. How do we return them to the king, safe and sound? (laughs) We bring them to Jesus. We bring them to Jesus. Now, the second meaning that Jesus had when he said in verse 14, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, is that we too must come like a baby with childlike faith. So if you think about it, the kingdom is populated with two kinds of people. Those who are babies and those who come like babies, right? What's Jesus saying? We we go back to our study in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3 when Jesus said, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the simplicity, the the openness, the honesty that that a little child has, a lack of pretension, the lack of hypocrisy, the dependency, the weakness. It's when we throw ourselves in complete humility and dependence into the arms of Jesus. That's how Jesus wants us to come to him. As a little child, as an infant. So what are the lessons we need to walk away with this morning? particularly in the context of bringing our children to Jesus. And these are important for parents that have little ones now, but also important for us who are grandparents with the influence that we can have on our own grandchildren. Let me give you five words, just five simple words that will help, help us remember uh, th- these various points. And the first one is remember. Remember. What are we supposed to remember? Well, one, that God created your children. God creates children. Every child is a direct work of his created hand. Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. God creates. God made that child. Secondly, God gave that child to to you as a gift Again, Psalm 127, verse 3. Children are a, her- are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from Him. 
Thirdly, children are to be a blessing to you. God made them and God gave them to you to bless you. Like arrows in the hands, Psalm 127 verse 45. Uh, like, Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is a man whose quiver is full of them. They are to be a blessing to us. And the fourth thing to remember is that God wants them returned to Him for His use. That's why Paul clearly says in Ephesians 6, 4, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Why do we need to do that? Because we are all, including children, God's handiwork, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Our children, he's got good works for our children to do, and we need to bring them up in the training and righteousness of the Lord so that he can then use them. The second key word that I want to bring out is teach. Children need to be taught. Their minds are sponges, drawing in everything, everything around them. Our school systems know that. That's why they're introducing this horrible sex education curriculum in grade school all the way up. They're teaching gender confusion from kindergarten onward. Paul, writing to Timothy, tells him to remember his own teaching and where it came from. In in 2 Timothy 3, uh, verse 15, says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scripture. Who did that? Who taught them those things? That was Lois and Eunice, his mom and grandma. From infancy. This is a huge role that so many parents end up abdicating these days. Because we're oftentimes concerned about the things of the world, we're letting child care teach them. And then we're tired at the end of the day, and we might do some little thing and put them to bed, but we're allowing others to usurp our role that God has given to us as parents So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to do that? Teach them. I want to take us to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Old Testament is full of amazing stuff. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I think we can find a pattern that we need to understand if we're going to effectively teach our children. And this has never been more important than it is today in the culture in which we are living I believe God gave this to Moses in the very beginning because it was so basic and it hasn't changed. There's a number of principles that I want to bring out here. And if we're going to teach our children correctly, we must, principle number one, worship the one true God in the right way. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. No idols. Nothing else can be more important than Jesus in our lives. We cannot teach our children correctly in the ways of the Lord unless we commit ourselves to Christ. Principle number two, love God completely. Verse 5, Deuteronomy 6, 
Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. What does that mean? That means we need to internalize what we believe about God. Not only have the right theology in our head, but the right relationship in our heart. That's why Paul says that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And it needs to become real in our hearts. If, if, if that is not there, our kids will see right through us. They're no dummies. They hear us say one thing, and then they watch us see something, do something different. It's called hypocrisy. James tells us in James chapter 1, verses 22 and 25, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be what? They will be blessed in what they do. I believe they will also be blessed in raising their children in their own, uh, if their own faith becomes their way of life. And then verse 7 of Deuteronomy uh, 6 gives us the third principle, to teach them diligently. It says, impress them on your children. Talking about the commandments, God's Word. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. What's that saying? That simply says that you have to teach from life situations all day long, every day. If our heart is filled with a love toward God and we love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that should be evident all day long, no matter what's happening. Every trial we face, every struggle we, we encounter, every moment of life, we teach the truth of God. When you stand up, sit down, walk along the road, And at night before they go to sleep, every time we have an opportunity, it isn't enough to just sit down with our kids and read them little Bible stories. Okay, good night. And then go on and live our worldly life the rest of the time. We've got to draw God into every aspect of our own lives so that they have to see Jesus in everything. In order for that to happen, we need to have Jesus living in our life and ruling on the throne. There's another thing that we need to do. We need to, this is principle number four, give them a lot of reminders. In verse eight, it says, tie them. Tie what? God's words, God's promises, God's commandments. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Do you have Bible, Bible verses hanging around in your homes? Or little plaques that remind the children of a great scriptural truths hanging perhaps in their bedroom. Do you have Bibles in your home? I've walked into people's homes and there's not a Bible in sight. Why? Not important? Do you read them stories? Do you sing songs with them about the, about the biblical truths that we've been singing about this morning? And as they remember that tune, then the truth of God's Word is played over and over in their minds as well. These are all little reminders. All these little reminders are just ways of reinforcing, reinforcing, and reinforcing God's Word. And there are all kinds of ways to do it. 
There's one other thing that we glean from Deuteronomy chapter 6 here, and that is principle number five, watch out for the world. Starting in verse 10, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord. Sometimes we get so self-satisfied, things are going really well, that the Lord takes second place. But as the Lord blesses us, blesses us and graciously provides for us, we love to pass on those blessings, don't we? And those provisions onto our kids. And that's a good thing. But at the same time, we need to teach them from where they came, why we are blessed in that way. We can't get complacent ourselves lest we forget the Lord. And we need to make sure we pass that on to our children because the world is trying to teach them that it all comes from our own efforts. It's how much effort you put, put into it, how much success that you can do on your own, and, or perhaps what you can get from the government. There's no, there's no God out there that can help you. You've got to do it yourself. Watch out for the world. Those are basic principles of teaching our children in the ways of the Lord. There's a third lesson, and that's the word model. Teaching our kids is one, one thing. Modeling is something to- totally different, isn't it? We have to set the pattern. There are actually a lot of horrible examples <laughs> in the Old Testament. We've got Eli, the high priest of the temple, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and it says in verse 12, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Why? Because Eli apparently was so busy doing God's work that he forgot to teach his sons correctly from infancy onward. And once they got older, it's too late. Later on, as they were older and they were getting into all kinds of horrible things, sleeping around, desecrating the sacrificial system, doing it wrongly, Eli tried to correct them. And it says his sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. Why? They had no respect for him. They hadn't learned from him. We know, know all about King David's sin with Bathsheba and the killing of her husband. And just before he died, he gave Solomon, Solomon a big speech. And basically said, oh, Solomon, be sure you obey all the commandments of God. He pleaded with him. What did Solomon end up doing? He went out and was worse than David. With all of his wives and all of his concubines, hundreds of them. And then his son, Rehoboam, he was a total disaster. There's nothing, not one good thing written about him in Scripture. The kingdom was split in two, and Rehoboam ended up losing his part of the kingdom because he had no fatherly example at all. And the Bible says he listened to his own generation. That's what our kids are doing. They're listening to their own generation. We could go on and on with negative examples, but we've, we've got enough of them in our own lives. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Can we say that to our kids? 
That's what we need to be doing. How do you treat your wife? Kids are learning. How do you treat your husband? Kids are learning. Do your kids ever see you with a Bible open in your hands, reading and studying God's Word, showing that that's important? We cannot choose a modern-day cop-out. Oh, I don't want to force my children to believe something. I want them to be able to make their own choice. How many of you have heard that? It's a bunch of garbage. Sorry, it is. Where does that teaching come from? That comes straight from hell. What choice are they going to make if left to their own devices? The choice of choosing the broad way because they have been born in sin. That will be always their first inclination. God says, teach them about me. Satan says, no, 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 no. Don't, don't force God on them. That's abuse. Let them do their own thing. Folks, we need to take that thought captive. That's wrong. We need to refuse that. We need to teach them about God. The fourth lesson is the word love. <laughs> love your children. That's a no-brainer. We need to weep with them, laugh with them, hurt with them, rejoice with them, sacrifice for them, protect them. We're not to provoke them and exasperate them. You know the scriptures. We need to be unselfish, serve them, provide their needs, give them gifts, show them uh, affection, give them pleasure, give them discipline. Love them in all these ways. And the final lesson is the word trust. We need to do all of this before, during, and after raising them. But the point I want to make is this. When we've done all that we've been asked to do, when we've remembered what God has done for us in giving us children, when we've taught God's word to our children from the get-go, when we've modeled a Christ-like life for them, when we've loved them dearly, then we need to trust God with them. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Do we make mistakes? <laughs> yes, lots of them. But if you've done your best in the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to trust God as Paul says in Philippians, he who began a good work in you, he who began a good work in them, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that trust translates into prayer. It translates into prayer. We need to continue to pray for our children. They will always be our children. That's never going to stop because they never stop being our children entrusted to us. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. What is our relationship with Jesus? Those who are listening in through Facebook, what is your relationship with Jesus? That's kind of the bottom line here, isn't it? You see, we can't do any of this if we don't know Jesus. Perhaps you're listening online today and you think, you know, I've, I've, never, I've never given my life to Christ. Won't you do that today? Scripture tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can't make it on, the, on our own. We can't be good enough to be accepted into the kingdom on our own. 
Do you know why this decision is so important? Because Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. It's eternal death. It's death for all eternity. It's eternal separation from God. But that's not what God wants. He wants to rescue us. He wants to give us a new life. And for that to happen, Scripture tells us that God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for you. Christ died for me. How does that work? It's a gift. It's a gift. Scripture also tells us that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that possible? How can that be? Well, we also read in Scripture that says, if you declare with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Yeah, Pastor, I've been a horrible person. God's never going to want me. (laughs) You You know what else God says? All who call on the name of the Lord. That's a big word, all. Even the most horrible people in their own minds. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Won't you do that today if you haven't done that before? And with that, then we can do the training of our children and bring up the children as he wants us to because he loves us and he loves them. I'm going to ask Ben and Marsha to come and fill and have a word of prayer here. And then we're going to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. Wonderful, what a wonderful song here to encourage us in that. Father, this morning... We thank you for the love that you have given to us, the love that you have poured out to us. While we were still sinners, we didn't deserve it. There was nothing good in us because of the sin that was living in us. But while we were still still sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing. And Father, if there is one that is listening in, whether it's this morning, Sunday morning, whether it's tonight, whether it's sometime during this week as as they uh, view the service, I pray that you would open their hearts, that your Holy Spirit would prepare their hearts. And they would say, you know, I've I've really blown it. I know that I'm going to hell, because that's what God's Word says, if we haven't accepted Christ. Say, Jesus, rescue me. I want you to be Lord of my life. Forgive me for my sins. And then we just need to thank him. Thank you, Father, for what you've done for me. Father, do a new work in us. And those of us who have perhaps been walking with you for many years, I pray that you would renew a right spirit in us, that that we would continue to walk in your word, that we would uh, be in your word constantly to to, uh, look for that direction that you and you alone can give to us. Thank you, Father. And as we sing this song, I pray that you do a work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.